Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has five years of law enforcement analysis experience and 21 years of crime reduction research experience. She's an author to several publications, and in fact, the fifth edition of her book, Crime Analysis with Crime Mapping, comes out next month. She is currently a professor and the co-director of the Center for Police Practice at Radford University in Virginia. She's also in my top 10 most influential to the IACA. Please welcome Dr. Rachel Santos. Rachel, how are we doing? Good. Thanks, Jason. How are you? Very good. I could have probably gone on and on and on with your introduction, so I hope I did okay. Yeah, you did great. The the more you talk, the the older I sound. So... um... (laughs) It's funny. Uh, Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a a segment that I was kicking around for the podcast. And every once in a while, I come up with these goofy ideas for the podcast. And and one of them was that I was going to create pompous versions of various guests. Sam Gwynn, I was going to have act out a scene in which Sam uh, just corrects everybody's grammar. Oh, geez. And and then just had all these different stuff. And I thought of one with you. Yours was going to be you answer every question by referencing one of your periodicals. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's what researchers do, right? Yes, yes. So every question that you answer, you say, this is my article, see this page, this paragraph. So well, was, if people knew how much work it took and how uh, many reviews and things that you have to do that, they would understand, I think. But that uh, is funny. Yeah, yeah but we, we never did it because we thought maybe people would think we were being mean, but we, we were just going to do it in fun, of course. But yeah, of course. Anyway, so yeah, as I should mention, it's, it has been a while. So but how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? Oh, that's a good question. I think, you know, a lot of the folks that you talk to, and I think in in the age of in 90s, a lot of us fell into it, right? It wasn't something that we even went to college for or grad school for or anything. So my story is similar to what, you know, some of the other folks talk about where I fell into it. I didn't have a criminal justice degree. I have three sociology degrees. So when I was working on my PhD at Arizona State University in Tempe, I was a graduate student. I did statistical stuff. I was a TA. And so I had TA'd in some graduate classes and undergraduate classes. And it just so happened that Noah Fritz was taking a class. He was in his PhD taking classes from my dissertation chair and said, hey, we were looking for some graduate students to work in the unit, not necessarily interns, but like part-time folks. And I still remember it to this day because it was like one of those things where it changes your life without knowing. And he came into my office, which was this, this little cubbyhole in the sociology department. And I was like, said, hey, you know, we, we have this thing. We, we have this crime analysis unit or police department. And um, we're looking to hire. I'm like, oh, OK. And I talked to my family. I just thought, well, you know. I can try it as 20 hours a week. I do this all this other stuff, but I think I have time. And I applied, didn't think I was good at never been. And Jason, I was never in a police department before. <laughs> I never got a ticket. I don't think I even ever had a conversation with a cop before. I didn't know anything about policing, no classes, no nothing. I did want to be a lawyer in college, but I didn't do that. I ended up going the PhD route. And I applied for the job and I, I still 
think about my interview and how naive I was and, you know, all that. And it was Noah and Sean Bear and Paul Bentley who were on the board with, I think they had some, a couple of cops and we, we spoke and I actually didn't know, but I had been Paul Bentley's TA in his mm-hmm. stats class. So it just worked out. They offered me the part-time position and within, I think it was within two months, I think Paul was getting married and Sean and Noah went to IACA that year. And I was left behind as the part-time person to help the chief present at the city council meeting on an analysis on a project we did together. So right away, I was involved and just loved it right off the bat. And when the full-time position opened the next year, I applied, because Paul had left and went to Scottsdale, I applied. Sean and I worked on the same side of the week when I was a part-timer. So we you know, worked really well together and, and all that. So I applied and got the full-time job, which I finished my PhD the next year, but I, that was, I thought that was all with academia. I ended up coming back, of course, but I loved it so much. I was like, you know what? I'm all in. I don't care if I have the PhD. I'm going to, and I worked there for another four years until I went to the police foundation. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, being naive to your first interview. It's, it's a good thing that those aren't recorded. Oh my gosh. <laughs> It would be so embarrassing, some of the things that you say to try to woo the crowd, so to speak, in in your interviews. But I find it amazing, your start there and who you worked with, Noah and Sean Bear, Dan Helms, and Paul Bentley. And I mean, man, all of those, starting out from the beginning, went on to do some really great stuff in the law enforcement analysis profession. So to me, it's kind of like finding out that all these professional athletes came from the same high school. So it's it's amazing to me that at one point in time, you guys were all part of one unit. Yep. Yep. And I think, yeah, we had, you know, we also had Mary Velasco, Eric Nelson, I'm trying to think there was one other, uh, Tammy Garrett, who ended up being the full-time analyst there. And now she's a, I think she went to fire and then she went to medical. So, I mean, there's a lot wow. of people who've done some great things too. Take me back then some of maybe the stories that you have, maybe some conversations that you have to give us an idea of what it was like back then. It's funny because I still, and and Sean and I will still talk about how a lot of the things that we were struggling with and things, innovative ideas we were thinking of back in the 90s are still relevant today in the sense of that still need to be done. I mean, one of the the biggest memories I have is of geocoding. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. We we talked about how some of the things that that are challenges still or not. And that's one thing that's definitely gotten better. But I just remember, you know, Sean being who he was, wrote a program to help us clean addresses and stuff, but you still had to do that manual geocoding, no X and Y coordinates, which is just, it's great now. And I think that's one of the big things. And I think the other thing, just in that unit and working with those, all those folks, I think, you know, going, we used to go to breakfast or go to lunch and just have these conversations about where to push the unit, where to push crime analysis, because we did a lot of presentations, obviously, at different conferences and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, Noah would come up with his grandiose ideas and we would talk it through. And then Sean and I would look at each other and say, all right, how are we going to do this? And Noah would go back and do whatever he was doing, which wasn't, you know, he at that point, he wasn't in the unit working in the unit. He was the, the supervisor over that some tech. So that was, you know, kind of the our thing there. And it was fun. I mean, we learned a lot and, and did a lot of things that we thought were innovative at the time, like I said, and they were. And I think they still are. Not just the software that shine, but the ideas and kind of bringing in even just, you know, looking at apartment complexes by unit, considering things, you know, rate and looking at, at problem areas and all that kind of stuff. But now, as you as an analyst, what are some of the things that you're most proud of during your time here? Because it seems like, yeah, Sean 
doing his programming thing, which isn't a surprise back then or even today, he's still doing the programming thing. But then what are you most proud of during your time at Tempe? I think for me, it was pushing the envelope and taking the things that I knew and learned in my PhD and the statistics and some of that and doing working inside the agency and doing that. But honestly, I think I think about it now based on my experience now that the police department didn't use crime analysis like they should have. And we did a lot of the stuff we did. We did for certain people who who knew it had its, you know, its worth. But the agency as a whole at the time didn't really grab onto crime analysis, even though they had it right. They got it for Mm -hmm. Kalia back in the late 80s. And I think. I, I'm proudest about how I was able to go to conferences to take what my experience there and to teach and, and bring some ideas to other people, which I then when I left Tempe, then I obviously that's what I continued to do. But I, we used to joke that people outside of Tempe knew the kind of things and the good work we were doing more so than the cops necessarily inside the department, which is sad. But at the same time, I think just being a part of the profession was something I'm very proud of. And that's actually how I got I moved out of Tempe was because I got attention at a conference for kind of being a researcher, having a PhD and talking to other PhDs who didn't know anything about crime analysis and kind of saying, no, this is the way it is. And and I know your world being the PhD world and the research world, and I know the crime analysis world. And, and that is what got me to the next step when I left Tempe. I just remembered when I took one of your classes way back when, this is 2002, I think that's when oh, we first gosh. met, yeah. and you talked about just being in proximity to people, and you, I think you said, think about how you know your neighbor. The only reason you know your neighbor is that you live next to them and you happen to probably come outside the same time. <laughs> but yeah. if you lived a block, you know, a couple blocks in either direction, you probably wouldn't know that person. So yeah. that, the idea that, you know, you're doing all this work outside the police department of what you're doing and people that you're within the police department aren't in contact, there's no proximity there, that makes a lot of sense. Well, it's funny just moving on and, and seeing and how to how to improve the analysis. I guess I have, we'll, we'll probably talk about it in a little bit, have some opinions about, strong opinions about what it is to be an analyst and how to get that. I guess my experience there of, of why police don't use crime analysis and how it could be so good. You could have good analysts, you can do good work, but it could just kind of go out there into a black box. And that's a lot of the work I do now, proximity or not, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. All right. So let's move on. As you mentioned, you leave the police department and you head to D.C., to the police foundation. And, and I don't know, we haven't talked about the police foundation on this program before. So let's just talk a little bit about the police foundation. And then we can talk about your decision to transfer from Arizona to DC. Yeah. I mean, um, the police foundation started in the, in the early seventies as part of the, after the crime bill, and it's from money from the Ford foundation. So unlike PERF and IACP, it's not a membership kind of organization. It was an organization set up to do independent research about policing and American policing. So it wasn't influenced by lobbyists. It wasn't influenced by police in, in the sense of to to beholden to, you know, a group of commanders like, you know, a membership organization. And some of the key research came out of the police foundation, the Newark Foot Patrol studies, the Kansas City Patrol study, a lot of domestic violence, really key research in the 80s 
And then in the 90s, um, they did a lot of, of work. I mean, Larry Sherman was there. David Weisberg was there. Who and he, David was actually the person who hired me. So I think with Police Foundation, their their main goal was, to, and it still is, to get grants and do research for uh, the government and work with and use their partnerships and develop and use partnerships to do collective research with agencies and, and, and departments. Okay. So then thinking back, you're coming in, you're transplanting from Arizona to D.C. What were you hoping as you make your way to D.C. into the Police Foundation? Oh, that was a yeah, good question. That was a, a big transition, a big I was, I think I was 30 years old. It was really life changing mm-hmm. taking that job because I was going out of the crime analysis field, being at law enforcement because, you know, Police Foundation is a nonprofit. So going there, I was part of the senior research staff. So as a PhD, you know, as a doctorate, I had, I had the status of the senior research. So I was working on all kinds of different research projects, not just crime analysis. But then my job was also to run the crime mapping lab, which was funding through the cops office to support police departments around the country that got funding for crime mapping, right? So they, all mm-hmm. these departments got funding for technology, but then they didn't necessarily know how to use it. And they didn't necessarily, their analysts didn't. So that was our job in the lab was to create training. And that's obviously how we met and then have a <laughs> newsletter and go to conferences and, and work with that. And then my job was, you know, obviously also to do higher level research and work on surveys and, and, but all, all the police foundation projects were working with police departments. I interviewed in uh, the week before Thanksgiving in 1999 with David Weisberg up in Toronto. They flew me up to Toronto to the ASC conference. I interviewed there. They made the offer. My last day at Tempe was December 31st, 1999. And as I walked out the door, I said, have fun on Y2K. You know, that was a huge thing. And I walked out the door. All the other analysts were working that night. Everybody's working. I'm like, see you later. And I was in DC working at my first week by the, I think it was mid-January. So, and this was like a huge decision that happened within a month. And I moved my, sold my house in three days and did that whole thing. So it was a big, a big deal. And I took the chance and I did that because I knew that going to DC, working for a place like that, I would hone my research skills in policing, in crime analysis, and then this opportunity to help crime analysts around the country and develop crime analysis knowledge and training and all that. All right. So then once you get to the police foundation, what are some of the projects that you were able to work on? Well, like I said, we had the lab and that was, we kind of transitioned that also from just a crime mapping lab to working, looking more at problem solving and problem analysis. I have a, a, a report that I wrote there called problem analysis. It kind of it was the first time that we really defined what problem analysis was versus crime analysis. Man, that project I think about it now and I, and I was new because I, you have to understand, I didn't have a PhD in criminology. So I didn't even, when David Weisberg called me to interview me for the job, I didn't even know who he was, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a big deal because David Weisberg, I mean, now, and even then he's, he's big time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, understanding Herman Goldstein and John Eck and Gloria Laycock and even Ed Flynn from Milwaukee, you know, those folks I wasn't f- that familiar with. And so when Mike Scott, um, who's now at Arizona State, which is interesting, was working with me on this, you know, this guy, but we're trying to figure out, you know, problem analysis. We brought in Ron Clark and Herman Goldstein and John Eck, I'm trying, and Gloria and Ed Flynn and, and Ron Glenzer, all, I remember them in the conference room at the police foundation. And I am running this meeting with these folks and I'm asking them <laughs> questions. And so John, what do you think, John Eck, you know, what do you think about 
the analysis piece in Sarah, you know, and, and I mm-hmm. knew he did say, but I just, you know, looking back now, I just didn't have that sense coming from, from a different field. And I became friends with them. So over the last 20 years, I've had the very nice it, to know them by name and, and have conversations and drinks at conferences and stuff. So oh, yeah. I think they're that's why I went there. Yeah, they're yeah. also approachable. And when you're at the conference, I really encourage all those names, folks listening, if you see those folks that she just listed at a conference, introduce yourself, ask a couple of questions because they are a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's funny, I was thinking that talked about mapping and uh, how new it was at the time and police departments needed to be educated and it just uh, how we fast forward to today and how much it's changed. And I, again, I don't know how many people are geocoding these days because everything has a lack log, it seems like, and seems like you've just done a whole 180 in terms of the time analysts spend on mapping, right? Before it was, it seemed like half your day sometimes was dealing with mapping just to produce a map to put into a report. And now it seems way more streamlined and they're not spending much time at all on the the work, the geocoding work that you and I would have done back in the day. Yeah. And I think too, it's funny that talking about my evolution of working with crime analysts too, when we worked together and and when we were, you know, that training at the police foundation, a lot of the training I did there was technical training, was software Mm -hmm. training. And because there's other opportunities, there's other things I personally don't like doing that kind of training. So I was glad to have to, and at this point, and, you know, I work with analysts different at a different level now where I'm coming in with the an organizational change model that analysts play a part of. So I work with the analysts to produce the things that they need for, for the model and for stratified policing, but I don't teach them how to do mapping. I don't teach them how to use Excel. And that is awesome, right? So analysts, <laughs> I think police departments know to hire people with those skills. And if they don't have them as much as they should when they walk in the door, there's a lot of resources to get them, right? From the city, even just going to it, just, or even, YouTube, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. yes. So, so I feel you know it, it makes it a lot easier for me to to assist and work with analysts to to just show them um, what we need and how things are actionable, how you make products that are evaluation oriented versus just statistical, that kind of stuff. So then you move on from the police foundation and you, you're professor at Florida Atlantic yep. and for oh, over 10 years. And then you, you eventually go on to Radford University where you are now. So you've spent the last couple of decades now doing the research, working on crime reduction strategies, talking to different folks. I know when I was at Cincinnati Police Department, we had you out there and uh, trying to help us with some data and some issues that we had. So you've gone through and talked to various police departments throughout the years. We're just going to look at this as a whole from the first day that you walked in to Tempe as an analyst till today. What do you think is the biggest improvement that the law enforcement analysis profession has made? That's a a, you know, good question. I think, you know, we kind of already hit on it. I think that the technology and the technical skills that the folks who are doing crime analysis 
in agencies. So there's no doubt that in terms of law enforcement, in terms of the law enforcement, it's just the number of analysts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even today, this you know, IEC lists of new positions. It's not just that people are leaving. It's like, oh, we need to replace this crime analyst. When and we're seeing even in the last five years, ten years is no, these are brand new. We've got one, we want two. We've got two, we want five. <laughs> yeah. And so I think the biggest thing, you know, in the 90s, it was, Tempe was um, unique in the sense of that we had two folks and then even Noah being a, a crime, former crime analyst who was then the supervisor and we weren't supervised by a sergeant or a lieutenant, you mm-hmm. know. I think the difference is now overall and probably more so in agencies with, with more than 100 officers, more than the, the smaller ones, but even smaller ones are, are hiring analysts, that they're a lot more common. The profession is developed. The conference, obviously, in the IACA has gotten so much bigger and so much more professional, though I think they have some more work to do. But, you know, when I started the conference, the first conference I went to was in San Pedro, California in 1995. Oh, okay. And there were about 80 of us. I think. <laughs> yeah. 80. If that's that, like, that's like a regional association conference today. I, it really is. Yeah. And yeah. it was, you know, it was the same folk, but, and, and it just built over time. So I think, you know, that's the difference really is the, the amount and, and, um, and how it's become, you know, and that's what just, just recently the, the Lima survey, which, you know, is done every, every few years just came out, the results came out. And, you know, you look at, I, I have these stats in my book, but mm-hmm. in the new edition, but, you know, like, like 90 something, I can't remember off the top, I'll probably be wrong with it, what's actually <laughs> in the book. But, you know, it's like some, almost all agencies that have more than 100 officers have at least, if they don't have a, an official crime analyst, they have somebody who does it, right? Not who's sure. maybe an officer who's, who's doing it. So I think that's a huge difference, huge difference. Okay. I guess on the opposite side, then, what are you surprised the law enforcement analysis profession hasn't figured out by now? Yeah, that's a good question, too. I think I think this is a nature of the United States and policing in general of the having consistency across mm-hmm. analysis where you have analysts in one department do things that this is their role and responsibility. And then in another department, it's different. Like, you know, police officers, you know, you can go from one department to the next and it's pretty, it's institutionalized in terms of what a patrol officer is doing, right? It's not mm-hmm. that. But for analysts, I'm, I guess I'm more surprised uh, the lack of consistency across agencies. And I don't know if it's a matter of the personality of the person, but most likely it, it's it's more has it having to do with the police departments and what they're expecting of that person more than the analyst skills or what the analyst wants to do necessarily. I mean, we're get we're we're moving, but I I guess what I'm disappointed, what I would like to see is the police leadership understanding a little bit more about what crime analysts are supposed to do and what they can do. If that makes sense, I think it's interesting because. In one sense, because analysts aren't nailed down, that gives them the freedom to get into wherever their interests lie. And so they might get have a little bit more leeway. They're not so structured. But then at the same time, I've talked to analysts up in Canada, for instance, where they're so strict and locked down that they're just the analysts are just there to create these reports weekly, monthly, whatever. And that's all there is. That's their job. Their job is to just create these reports no matter what and is so structured that the the analysts feel just too locked down. 
Yeah. So right. I guess you're always you're going to have the two extremes there. Yeah. Um, and it definitely, as you mentioned, in the United States, it definitely is a product of the fact that there are 18,000 police agencies. Yeah. In the United States. And then you're all governed by one chief or, you know, sheriff. Yeah. And change in that leadership can change the whole concept of what an analyst can do and will do at that department. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that going back to what you said about those extremes and, and it is somewhere in between, right? I mean, you want analysts who can innovate. You want an analyst who can is problem solving and thinking through what's the best way to satisfy a request and in, in a new innovative way. So you don't want analysts just to sit there and, and the leadership says, we want you to do this. And they're like, okay. And then they just go and do it and they give the report back. Mm -hmm. There's research on that that says that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because not all the time the, mm -hmm. the cops know what they're asking for. You mm -hmm. give them what they're asking for and they look at you and say, well, this doesn't do anything for me. And then they blame <laughs> the analyst when it was their question in the first place. That wasn't yeah. good. I think personally, in working with analysts, analysts should not be doing what they want to do. If that, and I know that sounds strong, but I don't mean it that they, you know, day to day, they don't get to do what they want. I mean that the crime analysis that serves the agency should be decided and should be dictated by the chief and the chief's priorities of crime reduction, of the things. It shouldn't be, hey, we just hired an analyst. Okay, analyst, you tell us what, you know, you give us the products that you think we should have. That's mm -hmm. not how crime analysis should be in an agency that's truly utilizing crime analysis. It should be something that there's an, a, a strategic plan for crime analysis. This is how it fits into what we do. We need it every single day because of this, that, and the other. And that's what Stratify Policing does. I mean, that that's the whole point is that it's an organizational model. This is what the sworn side is supposed to do. And these are the products that the analyst has to produce for the cops to be able to do their job. And you talk to any analyst who works in an agency who's done Stratify Policing, and they and I even know a few who they could go to other police departments. They were, they're excellent analysts, but they stay there because they know that they're important, right? Instead of a, an analyst, I know a few analysts too, that they're great analysts, but nobody uses their stuff and they're frustrated. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the balance is you want an analyst who's professional on that and knows and kind of can think of creative ways to do it, but they can't be doing whatever they want to do. Yeah. It's not based on what they do isn't based on their interest, I guess. It's based on what the agency needs. I think that's interesting because I know I, in some of the roles that I was at and even talking with other analysts, you get so much experience when you go to a place, they will give you a lot of leeway. They're like, okay, you go do your thing. You be you. We're not going to stand in your way. And I think a lot of times it's because there's not a complete understanding by middle management at a police department on how to guide analysts and so they'll just let them go and they'll do where their interests lie or what they think they can impact the quickest or the best it's not necessarily what you described from the top down it got me thinking i wonder and if you know this you feel free to tell me in the standard operating procedure for police departments how much is written about the analyst role right because you mentioned her before about patrol you know there's a ton of stuff in terms of standard operating yeah. procedure about a patrol officer. And, but how much in these police departments do they have the standard operating procedure documented 
for the analyst role? Well, and that's a good question. I mean, CALEA requires something in a policy, right, for crime yeah. analysis. That mm-hmm. that so if you're CALEA accredited, you have something. But I would I would pose the question, Jason, is how many police departments and law enforcement agencies have a policy for crime reduction? Yeah, and isn't and so- that the goal? <laughs> Yeah, is, yeah, exactly. So you've got about two hundred policies for calls for service. How to put how a cop should put a seatbelt on, where they yeah. should put the mace in, you know, the the pepper spray on their belt. You know, obviously those are extreme examples. But then, mm-hmm. okay, we do hotspots policing. We do community, not even community policing, hotspots policing, or we do ILP, or we do these things. Where's the policy on that? And the agencies we work with, after we work with them, they have a policy. But before that, they don't. And the reason why I say that is the policies that we have. Through that, the organizational, the crime reduction policy, there is a an entire section on crime analysis and what they do, what they do every day, what kind of products they produce on a weekly basis, on a you know an ad hoc basis in terms of patterns, on a monthly basis, and all that is spelled out in that policy. It's not necessarily. I mean, obviously, you could have a separate crime analysis policy, but in terms of what crime analysts do, so that's transparent too because it has what the chief does for crime reduction. What do the deputy chiefs do, assistant chiefs? What do the captains do? All those things are laid out and everybody sees what everybody else is supposed to do. So I think, you know, there are a lot of other things crime analysts do outside of some of those things. But, you know, I think police departments in general, and this is what I mean, they're not as uh, structured with crime reduction and by, by extension crime analysis as they should be. Or that they can be to be consistent to have it. It's not institutionalized that way, like calls for services. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by the topic when it comes up on various, you know, different news stories. The difference between a policy and a program, right? And you kind of laid it out there. The you know the policy, the written rules for the organization, and a program is just something. Somebody may run that has a lot more flexibility, is not usually written in stone, so to speak, and can be temporary. And you just run the program as the the leadership sees fit or whoever's running the program. But most of those things that you talked about, the crime reduction efforts, it's a program, not a policy. Yep. Yeah. And that's what I mean. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm a chief and I want to do ILP or I want to do pop or I want to do hospice policing. And Mm -hmm. so I look around, I say, Oh, you know what? I'm going to do a unit and I'm going to put, I'm going to get some go-getters. I'm going to do this unit. I'm going to put a sergeant there. I'll put it under a go-getter captain. They'll run around the city. They'll do stuff. I may or may not have a policy for that, but that's Mm-hmm. That is exactly what we're talking about as well. There's no way an agency can institutionalize and change their culture and do a good job of problem-oriented policing and these types of things with a unit of, say, five cops and a sergeant. The only way you do that is if the whole agency is involved, which requires the policy, which requires, you know, all those types of things. So it's the same idea of a program. Not only I'll extend it, I guess my extension is not only is those things types of a program, but then they will get even smaller when they have a specific unit doing this program in the agency. Patrol officers are like, ah, we don't do POP because the POP unit does it. We don't have to do it. We don't use crime analysis. We don't need crime analysis. That's that unit over there that needs it because they run around and they change their schedule and they do whatever based on the analysis. We don't need analysis because we're, we're patrol. So that's the idea too. Yeah. That's and, not- then, and then all this changes with leadership. I mean, we, we talked several times on this show how normal police departments, middle management will shift around all the time. 
so the captains majors rotate through the different departments and and same thing with the sergeants and lieutenants and then you get the you know chief changes and that creates all all ripple effect through everything else so if you're doing a you know ilp you know now you get a new chief or a new new captain major or whatnot you may be totally switching right then and there yeah it's and it's funny that you say that too and so with stratify policing, I know I'm saying stratify policing a lot, but that's the, you know, obviously that's the work that I do now with crime reduction and crime analysis yeah. is a big part of that. And with stratify policing, we at several agencies we went through, one in particular had five chiefs. Through all those chiefs, they kept stratify policing because it was something mm-hmm. that they couldn't get rid of because it was working. It was institutionalized. But if you think about this, as an analyst, your job should not change based on who uh, the captains are in patrol. Say all the captains of patrol, they leave and go to CID or vice versa. Your job should not change. You should be doing the same thing. And one of the things about that is you work for the agency, right? So you work for the agency. The agency requires certain products that come out. It's not the commander who's like, oh, I want this this week. No, there may be some things that, that they do, special requests. But overall, your job is similar. And it's just like saying, and we make this analogy in our book, in the Stratified Policing book, and, and it's really important because it really gets to understanding how crime analysis and how crime reduction is not institutionalized. When you say, oh, well, the job of a patrol officer totally changes based on whether they work day shift or night shift. And when we move different people into night shift, wow, the, the night shift, the way calls are answered, the way they work with dispatch, the way all those things change because it's different people. And that's that doesn't happen, right? Because there's structure and there's a system. No matter who's working, obviously people do better jobs than others. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the, the job of a patrol officer is the same because the whole structure says this is what that the patrol function does. It's in policy, it's procedure. I mean, obviously that's been around and that's the purpose of policing. So it's institutionalized, but that's where we try to move with the rest of it, with analysis, with well, using analysis for crime reduction, making sure it's consistent, it's structured, there's expectations and accountability. Hey, this is Sean Bear, and I would like to suggest that everybody go learn programming. I think that's the one thing that has carried me through all the different aspects of my life. And if you learn some programming, you'll better understand the applications that you use. And who knows, you might even be able to write your own application. Good luck. Hello, I'm Barry Fosberg, the Senior Analyst with Houston Police Department. I'm here to do a PSA for regional associations. If you're an IACA or familiar with IACA, get in, find out if you have a local association. And if for no other reason your crooks don't know you have borders, your borders typically have other crime analysts, and this is a great way to know them by name. Yeah, and you're, you were referencing the book, Stratified Policing, an Organizational Model for Proactive Crime Reduction and Accountability, yep. which uh, you wrote with Roberto Santos. I take it you know him. I do. And he <laughs> and he actually, yes, he's the first author on that because this is really a book for, um, yeah, he's my husband, obviously. And I've learned, I, I will say that's a, a one thing 
that um, has really impacted my career and my knowledge and thoughts about placing us meeting him and working with him. Obviously, now that we're married, you know, our conversations and we work together. He's he's a professor at Radford as well. Just got tenure this year. So he, oh, congratulations. Yeah, his second career after 22 years in policing, he's starting his second career, mm-hmm. which, you know, obviously he's super ambitious for a professor <laughs> job to be his second, uh, his retirement job, essentially. But yeah. yeah, so I mean, I think he and I, early on, we had, I'm an analyst at heart. And so even today, he'll say, Rachel, they don't need that. Why are you going? Don't, they don't need this, that, and the other in terms of what we do with it. And I said, yeah, but you know, in my, he has to know in practice, that's not how they're not, they don't care. They don't care about that. They don't need that. They're not going to use that. All it does is confuse what they really need for the analysis, even for the crime reduction stuff. So he keeps me honest because I'm still an analyst at heart. I still, he's, I can still go and play with an Excel sheet and get caught up and, and looking at things in different ways. And it really doesn't, you know, it's just me for me. It doesn't really do anything for what we're doing as a researcher too. And he may, he grounds me and, and I, and I can't understand some of that because I was never a sworn person. I, and he was a a commander. Not only did he implement stratified policing, but he, you know, he supervised a special enforcement, you know, the narcotics guys, and he was a commander over that. He's commander of patrol. So he, he knows all the the different things and the leadership aspect, the accountability aspect. So I can't learn that. I've never been a supervisor in my career, which I'm very happy. Well, maybe one in the police foundation, but that was like over two people who are awesome. So, yeah. you know, so he, I, I don't have that experience to apply. Yeah. Sometimes us analysts can get stuck in the data. So I can appreciate that. So you've talked a little bit about stratified policing, but I wanted to go into it a little bit more detail then and specifically talk about how crime analysis fits into this approach. Yeah, good question. Um, Well, I think because this is an analyst audience, I will say this, that this is a book you want your chief to read because you cannot do stratified policing without it. This is you know, based on my experience, but also the whole foundation is defining problems, breaking them down. And and again, I, I guess I'll use this. You have to have crime analysis. We actually just worked with an agency and we had a contract that was based on the fact that he was requesting an analyst in the budget. And if he didn't get it, we weren't going to do the, the work until he got it because <laughs> we, they, you can't do it without a crime analyst. The idea is what we do is make an analogy in the book for stratified policing, which is, and it goes back to what I was saying. So calls for service response is institutionalized in every agency. They have policies, they have procedures, almost everything in the police department, even IA stuff. Most of the time it comes back to a call, right? The supervisors are there. Detectives are there to help with calls for service. You know, they're just doing in-depth. And so what prompts a call from the citizens goes to dispatch. The dispatch sends an officer. Those are prioritized. The seriousness, you know, those are calls for service are prioritized. How many officers go? Who goes? Is it a canine? Is it a supervisor? And it's really the seriousness of the call that dictates how the police react. So we have policies, you know, domestics and all that. So what we say in stratified policing is we do the same thing for crime reduction, that what we want to do is create that system similar to calls for service that something prompts a response. So the whole thing is reactive. So the whole stratified policing is, it seems reactive, but it's proactive because the police department is identifying what these things are beyond and above and beyond calls for service and crime, because that responding to those doesn't reduce crime overall. So 
what we do is something has to be dispatched. And when the crime reduction, quote unquote, call is dispatched, then there are certain expectations of officers, of sergeants, of lieutenants. And in stratified policing, it, it moves up the chain as the problems become more complex, just like it actually does in calls for service. You have a hostage situation. It's not, you know, a midnight officer going by himself or herself. It is everybody on board. So what prompts that, quote, dispatch in stratified policing? What do you think, Jason? crime analysis, right? (laughs) So the crime analyst is the person that starts the crime reduction process with their product. Now, they're not in an office by themselves deciding what these products are. They're not in an office by themselves deciding what the priorities of the agency are. The chief dictates, chief says, yes, we're going to look at violent crime. We're going to look at robberies, non-domestic aggravated assaults. And then we're going to look at residential burglary, not commercial burglary. We don't really have that issue. These are the things, crime analysts, that you're going to look for patterns every day. These are the things that we're going to do for problem locations, problem areas. I'm going to tell you, then you do the work. And when you put something out, cops are going to do something. And so that puts a lot of, and so, and that's the action oriented product. The whole thing is built. All of stratified policing is built around that idea. So you have to have an analyst. What we recommend is if you're doing stratified policing, you have to, at a minimum, have two analysts. No question. None of this size of agency, whatever. If you got 20 people, and obviously it's not as realistic, but, but if, you know, if you have 70 officers, you have 50 officers, you need two analysts because you need it every day. And someone's got to have it go on vacation once in a while. (laughs) After that, after the first hundred cops, so say, you know, for, if you have 200 to 300, if you have 200 cops, then you need a third analyst, 300, another one. Obviously, the more you get, the better. But but mm-hmm. we say at a minimum, you need two right off the bat to start doing a good job, or at least one with a backup if you're smaller. But if you have 150, 200, you should have two. 100 cops, you should have two analysts. So that's because um, if the analyst goes on break, things don't happen and the police are not responding, just like if dispatchers weren't there. I mean, <laughs> cops can go and find their, you know, they can go and find their own crime, just like they can go and find their own patterns. But you think they do? If they say, hey, go out there and go be proactive and go find, identify a problem, respond to it on your own um, and go ahead. Do you think that happens? No. The police department has to set a system where the cops are going to do that. And the only way we do that is because we have to prioritize. We can't do everything. We have to identify these problems. And that's what crime analysis helps to do is to distinguish which things we should do and what should you know, what we should respond to and what we shouldn't. It's all based on research too, in terms of offender focused, place-based problem focused type of responses that the police are going to do. Yeah. So can you walk us through an example or some, uh, one of the processes that really worked out in terms of this stratified model, just so audience can get a better idea with an example? So it's stratified policing. So there's strata. We have different level, immediate, short-term and long-term problems. So really the media, the short-term problems are repeat calls for service. We call them repeat incidents and crime patterns, which most analysts know about, right? And then for long-term, it's problem areas, which we also, I think in the, in the field called the hotspots, problem locations, which are individual locations and problem offenders. So I think patterns is probably the best one to give an example for, because that's what most analysts are doing. So the idea is that number one, the chief's going to decide what patterns you're going to look for. 
Now you look for all patterns, but which ones are priorities? So if you have a violent crime area, then we focus on robberies. Like I said before, maybe residential burglary, commercial burglary, maybe commercial burglary isn't a, a high priority. So if you find a pattern, great, but you're not necessarily looking for those every single day. Once those are set, the analyst looks for patterns. When they find one, they put it out there. They have the number on there. And uh, the reason why I say, it, say it's 2022-001. And so they put it out there. And one of the things we do have, too, for microtime hotspots, which are not series, but, you know, are clusters of crimes in an area where you're not sure there are criteria. So a lot of agencies we work with, what they'll do is they'll say, if you have two crimes within a, a 0.2 square mile area, uh, radius, I'm sorry. So there's criteria to say, and this depends on the chief, the chief would approve these things to say, you know what, if it's only two, we have so many other ones, let's not worry about it. It's got to get three within a certain time period within 14 days, right? It's got to be short term for that. Series are different. So those criteria, the analysts use, they find these patterns, they publish them as soon as they come in. Those analysts, when they publish them and they do not email them, I want to emphasize this, I hate email for criminal. <laughs> they do not email them. They post them on an intranet for whoever, and maybe they put it for like district one, if it's a district one. So once that's out there, now they're done with that for now. And, and obviously they do their whole thing with patterns, talk to detectives beforehand, make sure the information's good, put suspects, known offenders. It's a good pattern. Let's just assume that. Mm -hmm. Officers, what we say, they require to do 14 days minimum response. But during that time, the analyst is looking for more crimes related to that pattern. So, so the cops are doing, the patrols doing their 14-day minimum response. The detectives are working the cases, working the known offenders, trying to find, you know, solve the crime. And they say the analyst finds another crime within the next three days. Well, they post it again. They update it. They post it again. It now becomes a 001A. And that sounds so, I mean, I know most analysts do this, right? They do this already, but I'm just explaining the process here. Sure. So it becomes a 001A, they put it back out. Guess what happened? There's another 14 days of response because obviously cops are responding, but it, what you did didn't work. There's another crime. So now you got to do 14 more days. So the analyst keeps looking and say, maybe there's another crime that happens five days later. Now, what we say is the analyst, what I, what we, the rule we have is you look for the 14 days, probably for another a week after that. So say there's no crime for 14 days, cops stop their response, but the analyst looks for another seven because we know the offenders could come back, back to the area. So they do another seven, but say there's another crime. So they put it out again and it's a B and now it's 14 more days. And so the way the pattern is and the kind of tracking, we've got the data came out, we have the data was updated, we have the A, B, C. So if we, it's a B, we know it's been updated twice. Now, who knows it's been updated twice? The chief knows it's been updated twice. And it can see, oh, it's been updated twice by the analyst and it's been open for response for like four weeks. Then the chief and folks are holding people accountable. Are you guys even in there? How long, how long have you been in there? Do you have patrol officers? Are you making contacts? And so the analysis in stratified policing, the analysis puts it, it sets that, that call to set the response, but it also evaluates and holds, helps to hold people accountable. So you can see how important it is for, as, and what I talk about is the analyst does not report to that district commander who's being held accountable for the responses <laughs> for that. They cannot report to that person because we know, I mean, they, they could be influenced, not that the captains are out to get any, you know, but it just puts them in an awkward situation when they're reporting to that person. So they should, that's why we talk about being in a accountability neutral type of thing. So once it, the, the pattern is over, 
and you know they close it down if arrest is made they put the arrest on the bulletin and send it out to everybody and that gets tracked in the accountability meetings so in terms just in terms of patterns the analyst sets out the response they monitor to see if the response is being effective and they alert as they're going along it's like a real time evaluation and lets everybody know and it allows the co- the the commanders to hold their folks accountable for effectiveness i had deb peel on last year and when she was working at nypd she was discussing the process of like how every pattern or series gets an identification number and essentially becomes its own case and that's how they work nypd works through their process and this sounds very similar to that in that i like the idea that this pattern is getting its own life. It's it's getting assigned yep. a number, and this is something there were folks throughout the police department can influence this particular case. And that's a good question. What it does in stratified policing, what it does too, it becomes a unit of response, and that's what we're talking about. So when that pattern comes out, stratified policing requires, and this is in the policy, it requires that it is assigned to not an officer, but in patrol, typically it's a lieutenant in patrol. So it will be assigned to that human being, a lieutenant, not all lieutenants, a certain lieutenant. Um, and we argue, and, and a lot of analysts are doing this too, down at, uh, former, they put the actual lieutenant's name on the bulletin. It's also assigned to a detective. So that mm-hmm. detective's name also gets put on the, because we know that, you know, not all cases are assigned um, and a detective or one detective may have one or two crimes. Another detective may have another one, but one detective is responsible for this pattern and organizing this pattern for on the detective responses, but a patrol lieutenant, not an officer, not a sergeant, because they have other things they need to do for stratified policing, but a lieutenant is assigned. The pattern has to make sure that those things are coordinated. So if the detective's not doing what they're supposed to do and they're not reporting out, there's a whole communication system that the lieutenant will obviously call over to the CID lieutenant. It's not going to call the detective directly just for chain of command, but making sure, hey, are you guys doing your part? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. And the lieutenant's like, what the heck? Then they go to a weekly accountability meeting and the lieutenant or the captain talks about their patterns. And they say, oh, we're doing this. Patrol's doing this, this, and this, but we're still waiting for the detective to do this. And the deputy chief says, okay, CID commander, what are they, what are we waiting for? We've been waiting for this for three weeks. And the CID commander's like, oh, um, I'll check with my detective on that. So, well, yeah, you better because we need, these patterns are a unit of response and we need everybody to work together on this. More often than not, it's a positive thing where everybody's doing what they're, so, and just reporting out. But those accountability meetings that stratified policing does on weekly and more so weekly, but they also have the monthly evaluation ones that really keeps people collaborating, making sure that we're all focused on the pattern mm-hmm. and responding to that pattern. And by having this one thing that we all look to, it really helps. And you know, you do this for one pattern, it's not going to reduce crime. But if you do it over and over, and this is a system, this is what you do all the time. And we, we did research on this one and we have several, uh, we did a randomized control blind randomized <laughs> control experiment on this that shows that yes it reduces crime overall by doing patterns like this for like 50 percent, it can reduce over time mm-hmm. so that absolutely is effective but again not one at a time not just ad hoc it has to be part of a system yeah. to be effective so so what are the growing pains for analysts in this stratified model that you found ah yes I actually have some interviews with analysts just starting this process here in a little bit. Actually, today, the growing pains for an analyst that I've seen, because I work directly, and when we 
do this. We have a whole like a three-step year-long process when we work with agencies. And I obviously work closely with the analysts. The biggest thing is they want to do what they want to do. And they want to do, well, this is what they asked for me before. This is what I've been doing before. And that's fine. In stratified policing, there are certain products that we know are evidence-based that work and that we've seen that work. This is all stuff that, that a lot of people have done before. But they're done, we do it in a certain way and it has to be actual-oriented. So I, I train them on how to do these products, but then how to keep track and how to keep up on it. Even patterns need a lot of work. I'll be honest. Even analysts who've been doing patterns for a long time, they still still need a little bit of work to get it to where we need it for stratified policing because it really does need to be action-oriented and we need to really streamline, no paragraphs, no uh, dissert- long dissertations, not five maps, not, you know, it's it really got to be clean and good that way. So I think that's, that's a challenge. Most of the time, I don't teach them any skill. I, and most of the time it's no, no issues. I, in my the next edition of my book, you will see a lot of examples, uh, really good examples. I've, I've replaced a lot of the ones I've had before, not that they weren't good, but it's, I've really focused it. And most of those analysts, I think almost all of those analysts are, are doing stratified policing. And so they're not all of them are stratified policing examples, but they're all really good ones. Uh, but things like patterns, um, you know, how I kind of give what I what I recommend, which is in the last book, it's very similar, but then how different analysts maybe format their stuff a little bit differently in that way, but to get to this purpose. So the, those are some some good examples. And it's just a matter of thinking through problem solving. What's the what's the shift? The shift is, and again, this is what Roberto and I talk about. The shift is analysts have to get out of being analysts and have some uh, a little bit more empathy on what this is going to be used for. And agencies typically, most most crime analysts, their agencies don't use their products like they do like they will in stratified policing. So that's a shift right there. Yeah, I would think that just like anything else, when you're trying to implement something department-wide is having somebody there day-to-day that, and multiple people probably, that can understand when things are not being done as they should and to correct them immediately instead of having somebody misinterpret what they're supposed to be doing. And then you get some really bad results in the product because there's not a great understanding of this new model that's being implemented. No, absolutely. Yeah. That's why when we make a, when we work with an agency, because this is organizational change, this isn't just Mm -hmm. getting an analyst and producing good products. This is honestly, most of the work is on the sworn side, but um, that's why when we work with an agency, it's a, it's a year long thing where I'm, I, I still, I name actually, you know, I become friends with these analysts. So I, I have one analyst and we worked we were done working with him like a year ago. He still, hey, I'm working on this pattern. This is what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. This is what they're doing. They're not, you know, what I'm feedback I'm getting from the commanders. What should I do? And so it, you're, you're absolutely right. It's not a, a one and done. And there's still little caveats, things that come up. But then I have other analysts working. They're basically running the show. I mean, they've got <laughs> a one analyst. She's great. She teaches for us at, at Radford her, um, down in Matthews. North Carolina, uh, Amanda Bruner, she's the agency. I think they have like 60, 70 and she, she's got it. She knows it. She, a lot of her products are in the book this time because they're just so good. And she truly understands it. And the chief looks to her for, uh, she runs the meeting, their, their accountability meetings and talks through. And when she gets questions from the sergeant, so she's a real leader in that agency. And I, I don't know if that, that can be, it's, it has to do a lot with her personality and, and capabilities, but she also is stays in her lane too. 
right? <laughs> um, because she's a civilian, she's the analyst, but with, well, like you said, with that, that good understanding, she can help other folks, but the chief is fully engaged and knows what is expected too. So it's not like the analysts can do this on her own. The mm. chief is very involved in this. Interesting. All right. Well, I do want to move on because I do want to get into your new book that's coming out, the fifth edition for crime analysis with crime mapping. So what are some new changes in the book? It's funny because I thought I streamlined it, which I did. I streamlined most <laughs> a lot of the writing and took out some of the stuff, and but it's just as longer, longer. And one of the reasons, because Jason, literally, I got the final copy that I have to look through one more time, two days ago. So that I'm gonna, I have to have that done by Monday. So that's how new it is. But the the biggest changes are I have a lot more products. There's a whole new chapter. So I took chapter seven, if those of you who used it before, and I co- consolidated all the recommendations that I've made kind of throughout, except for the pattern bulletin thing. If, of, it's like a chapter on products. So these are the products that crime analysts typically do all the way from bolos and alerts and all that to memos, to reports, to all that. So it's a whole thing. And then it's got examples. And it also says, okay, what are some of the things, the requirements for presentations that you're putting together? What should a memo look like? What, so remember this, this book is for undergraduate students. Um, who have no experience in uh, policing in the field at all, and obviously new new analysts too. But it is a textbook, so that's new, and I'm I'm really excited about that because it it does bring in all of that together. And I'm teaching these classes in undergrad. And I know that that chapter is really going to be helpful. The other thing is put in a chapter. I, you know, I I hate. <sighs> crime analysts always well, crime analysts always have to do stats, right? They always have to do the percent change. They always have to do the year to date stuff. And I didn't, I had the statistics part in there, but I didn't have the statistical trends and what we look at that way. So it's an introductory book. It's pretty straightforward, but it basically goes through all the comp stat reports and what kind of things the analysts do. There's examples, um, how you use trend lines. Obviously, like I said, percent change, mean, standard deviation, but all that is within context and it's got examples now. So I think that's good. And then the last chapter I've changed from, I had an accountability chapter before and I took that up now that we have the stratified policing book, all that is discussed there. And so for analysts, I focus more on evaluation. So how do you evaluate problems? How do you evaluate a problem location? How do you evaluate a problem area or just a problem or just a crime prevention strategy or something? So the different you know, it's a little bit researchy. It's not researchy. It's it's really <laughs> straightforward, but it, it gives you the different models, like the one-shot case study, the pre and the post, single measurement, multiple measurement, and just gives that instruction and, and talks a lot about the, po- the problem-oriented policing guidebooks for responses that analysts can help police develop too. So I think besides updating the literature, updating a lot of the pattern section, I've really I, I actually improved that too. Repeat incidents and calls for service has its own chapter now where go through not just repeat incidents or repeat calls, but how else you use calls for service data examples there. And then the pattern, I have new examples, more examples of different patterns, different uh, you know robberies and aggravated assaults and this and that. So um, it really tries to give context. Again, this is for students who have, who are, mm-hmm. I, I hate to say clueless, but they, you know, they just don't know the field. And so I try to go heavy on, on practice and examples. 
I gotcha. So uh, folks write a book and then that's usually it with the book. There's not too many people that get to write the fifth edition of a particular book. So as you've done this now for the fifth time, what is your perspective of writing this textbook from the first time to now you've, this is the fifth edition to this textbook? Besides being sick of it? No. Um, <laughs> it. It's a lot of work. I mean, it was a lot of work in the beginning because mm -hmm. I had to, you know, I, a lot of the stuff that I came up with from scratch, but it's still a lot of work to put it because I, you know, I, I have high expectations for myself in this and that it's required, you know, part of the textbook process is that it has to be substantively different, which people who use the book are like, I'm glad she doesn't change it too much. But, you know, they don't have to change it too much, but you do have to have new things, different things, even if it's just as simple as updating the literature and all the products and stuff. But I think that the challenge is, and I'm, the challenge is it's a lot of work because I really want to do a good job and I really worked on the writing. I'm so glad in the beginning when I started this whole thing, and I think this may be why some of the crime analyst books haven't been updated, is that they're too heavy on the technology. I know that's what some people using the book say, oh, I wish she talked more about the crime mapping software and different things. I did that on purpose. There's a reason for that because mm -hmm. a book, as soon as you publish it, it's outdated <laughs> when you talk about technology, period. And yes. so- so focusing on the concepts, which honestly haven't changed that much, focusing on good products. I don't care how you get them. I don't care what, if you use Microsoft, if you use whatever, I don't care. You know, focusing on that has allowed me to hone the book and, and really, obviously keeping it updated is part of the new additions too, but to try different things and, and really focus it on making crime analysis and giving that introduction to crime analysis something that if you do this book and, and you read this book and you learn the things in this book, you should be able to walk into a police department and understand what you're supposed to do. If not the technical aspects of, you know, the RMS and the CAD that you have to learn, but you should have a good idea and some specific direction on what you should be doing. Repeat incident reports, pattern analysis, identifying problem areas, problem locations, problem offenders, and doing in-depth analysis of those to help police solve those problems. Very Good. Well, I will put in the show notes uh, links to you know, the books that we talked about. And when your uh, book does come out, I'll make sure I update the, the web page so folks can find the book. So yeah, awesome. Um, I think it's I think it's out there right now. The website, that, sure. the web page on Sage publications that you'll find that will be the same once it's out because it's already out there as a forthcoming. So oh, that I should see. be. Yeah, you should be fine with that. Okay, good. All right. I next want to talk about the universities and analysts. And on, on this show several times, I've talked about the importance of internships and how universities and police departments seem to have this disconnect in getting uh, students some real life experience and getting into internships. And I've gone on and on and on how I think the, both the IACA and ILEA can do a way better job of facilitating those two, uh, getting students more internship opportunities. But given you know, your history and given you've worked in the universities for so long now, what can a university do to help future analysts? Good question. And I know internships are important and a lot of people do get their feet in the door that way. But from a professor's, you know, we have a minor here. I started the minor 
in crime analysis here at Radford. It's, it's great. And we have a certificate at the graduate level. Our students, I, I just had four, five students get jobs within six months of graduating. So we got one now in Fort Myers. We have one in, in Pineville, North Carolina, in San Antonio, I mean, Austin, Texas, Tucson, Arizona. These are people who are undergrads with no internships who got jobs right out of college. Now, one of the reasons they didn't get internships is that we're in Radford, Virginia, which is in Southwest Virginia, which is a town of 10,000. We, I think you know, our school is popular in Virginia because students can get away from their parents and they come <laughs> and it's a beautiful campus and it's a beautiful area. But the police departments are very small. They have analysts, but even then they don't really have crime. So even if they were to sit in, not, I wouldn't say they won't have crime, but if they were to sit into the crime analysis unit, we wouldn't be able to get, you know, we have 30, 40 minors. We can't get all those people in, in internships. They can try to go in the summer and sit in with the police department up north or, you know, in different places in Virginia. Obviously, Virginia has a lot of crime analysis, but I don't build the program based on that because, and there are a lot of universities where they don't have the opportunity. And sometimes interns can get bad experiences that way too. But regardless of that, I think it's a good idea, obviously getting exposed to a police department and knowing you know, how to wear the right clothes, how to be a professional and, and learn that. That's, that's huge. I think for college students more than learning the skills. I think from a university's perspective, what we can do is do a better job of preparing the students for the job. And that is teaching them the skills. And this is one of the reasons why this book, my book is different. And I update it was based on what we've been teaching in the minor. Because the last book, I, the last edition was right when I got here, right? And all I did was mm-hmm. teach a couple of classes at FAU. Now that we have the minor, we've got a tech, in that it's an intro class and a technology class, right? So those are like the 300 level classes. And the technology class is CAD, RMS, all that stuff. It's really good for any criminal justice major, not just crime analysis. Then we have three upper division classes. We have a tactical crime analysis class, whole semester just on patterns, repeat incidents. And I do a little bit of intel, but not a lot. Strategic crime analysis, is this another semester? These are four credit classes that, and both of them have labs. And so they learn problem areas, problem locations, statistics, problem solving, all those things. And then we have a capstone, which I'm just starting next week, which is, and basically how I teach that is the whole purpose of the class is develop a portfolio based on all the other work <laughs> they've done in the minor. So their pattern examples, pattern bulletins they've done, and we use bulletin wizard software in the class. So they have official bulletins. I give them data. The problem areas they identify, and we and tech, have them do a technology memo, all these things go in a portfolio with an explanation for people. Because you know, when you get hired as crime analyst, the people who are hiring you don't necessarily know what you're supposed to be doing. It's an introduction. It's a, it's a nice, like, again, a portfolio. This is pattern analysis. This is what it is. This is what it's for. This is the kind of things police do with it. Here's an example of a pattern. This is strategic analysis. This is what we do, you know, all that. And we also do job announcements. I have them write a cover letter. They do their resume. We do a mock interview. Sean comes in and talks... Sean, you know, he did his whole thing with you. And so he yes, comes in to talk, yeah, talk in our class. They all join the IACA as one of their requirements for the class because the book, they don't need to buy any more books because they've already had the classes. And we critique other products that other people do. It's really a professional development class. And these are the th- three of the students I had out of 12 last year because, you know, we're just starting. Three of the 12 had jobs by September at good police departments. And they, again, they didn't have any experience. All they, their crime analysis experience was the minor. What's interesting is that there are some students, the North Carolina job, she beat out a couple of people from some pretty big universities with some, you know, good degrees, some crime analysis classes. And the chief could really see and understand that they understood 
policing as well as the crime analysis and show that portfolio really made a difference to walk in with examples of the work. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention that because I was like, mm-hmm. Sean would be proud that you're pushing the portfolio, but uh, yep. he's a part of it. That's why, because when we did Sean Bear's guide to hiring a law enforcement analyst, that was one of his big pushes was to have that portfolio. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting and very good on the success of the program and at least in the very beginning. Yep. Yeah, no, it's well, it's been a couple of years now. That was our first, our second cohort that went through last year. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Uh, Rachel, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Oh, my gosh. Um, I would say my words to the world are for those experienced analysts to, you know, they, I know what a lot of them do is working on making data better and making technology better, but they also, because I think at that point they're chiefs and folks are trusting them, right? Their opinions. And I think it's, they can't change an agency, but they can be a spark by looking outside of their own agency to see other ideas and see how they can bring in to, to make that, not just analysis better, but make the agency better too. So I think that would be my biggest thing for those experienced folks. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. Very good. (laughs) But I do appreciate you being on the show, Rachel. Thank you so much and you be safe. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at elliotpodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.